Well, hello there. I'm your host for today, Dr. Kate Henry. And in this episode, we're meeting Dr. Melody Hartzler, a pioneering health expert in functional medicine. Dr. Melody Hartzler specializes in gastrointestinal disorders, nutritional deficiencies, and autoimmune conditions. And she's a nationally recognized speaker on diabetes. As the owner of Farm to Table, she's revolutionizing pharmacist-provided care in America. She's also an authority on advanced diabetes management. And today we're picking her brain about type two diabetes and what it truly takes to reverse it. We'll uncover the fascinating connections between the gut microbiome and blood sugar regulation, examine the science behind the new Ozempic Wagovi weight loss craze, and ask Dr. Melody what you can truly do in the kitchen and at home to reverse type two diabetes for good. Get ready to leave this podcast with valuable insights that will help you transform your understanding of blood sugar management and insulin resistance. Before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you're a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create your free account today. While you're there, you can also try out our latest tools like the meal plan generator and lab shops, which make practicing functional medicine easier than ever. So cool. Now let's start the show. Dr. Melody Hartzler, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Hi, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled you're here. This is such an important topic, and we've gotten a lot of requests around this topic, type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. You are a doctor who treated this for years in your practice, a doctor of pharmacy, and you have developed a really special holistic way of approaching this topic. And I'd love to hear you talk about why. Going back to the why of I with taking care of patients with diabetes really started with family history of diabetes. And then knowing that I really wanted to serve that population, I actually did my residency training in the VA system. And we had a lot of patients with diabetes, some that were there because they were exposed to Agent Orange and that caused severe insulin resistance. It's interesting looking back on that toxin exposure conversation then and then now knowing what I know about toxins that I didn't know then and all of those connections. But over the years, really finding that titrating insulin wasn't the answer. People with type 2 diabetes, and certainly people with type 1 diabetes, absolutely need insulin. Although there's some really cool innovations happening in that space as well. There's a recent drug approval for an immune therapy that actually helps prevent type 1 in patients that have the beginning stages of type 1, which is mind-blowing because we haven't had any options for those patients that have that autoimmune destruction of the pancreas other than giving insulin. But the technology is amazing in that space. That could be a whole other podcast. But with type 2, type 2 patients have insulin resistance. And we're going to talk more about all the different elements of that. But in reality, they don't most of the time need insulin at the beginning. And that's because their body's making insulin, but their body's just not able to use it properly. 10 years ago, 14 years ago, when I started, we didn't have as many great options as we have as far as drug therapy. But even the drug therapy we do have now isn't going to fix everybody if they're still eating the standard American diet and not addressing nutrition and not addressing the gut microbiome and nutrient depletions and stress and sleep 
and all these things that are interconnected. I think figuring out that over time, just like patients get frustrated, getting frustrated with a system that we can prescribe and prescribe and we can have you come back and titrate and titrate. But unless there's change happening and those other places, we're really not going to get the outcomes that we want. I love it. And it sounds like the outcome you want would be reversal of type 2 diabetes. Yeah. And I think that conversation definitely can happen in patients. I think sometimes it depends on what stage of diabetes they're in. Is this brand new? Is this 15, 20 years later where they've had their blood sugar high for 20 years? Then I think that conversation might be a little bit different as far as like complete reversal. And part of that is because of metabolic memory and our cell memory that once we've done something away for a certain time, it's a little bit harder to reverse it. So the earlier we can reverse and even the prevention component is the big piece. And that's why we're really passionate about prevention and why we're launching our program focused on those patients. Tell me about your program and what's included. We are doing a diabetes prevention program and weight loss and we're calling it Thrive. I actually put Thrive on my license plate because I was so much tired of hearing the phrase, I'm just surviving or I'm just here, I'm okay. We shouldn't be just here and okay. We should be thriving, doing the best we can. Obviously, there's challenges in life and not everything's perfect, but being able to have that physical, spiritual community, all of that component all together, not only thriving in our physical health, but also in other places in life and just really helping people feel purpose. We're really focusing on preventing diabetes in patients and also helping them lose weight. It comes with lab testing at the beginning and the end of the program. There's some optional lab testing people can add on to to look at some of these really more specific things. And then coaching is really the bulk of this program. We have some phenomenal coaches that are really helping people change their mindsets about a lot of these changes that they need to make in their life and providing education that really gets at this root cause. We took some of the standard the curriculum that put out by the CDC. This is what we need to help people. But we took that and added in the functional medicine components. Now we're not just talking about eating carbs. We're going to talk more about polyphenols and nutrients and how these micronutrients are affecting your blood sugars and getting down to some of those more nitty gritty things and then adding in sleep conversations. Yes, the CDC says you need to sleep seven, eight hours a night, but why? And how does that affect your blood sugars? Um, really getting deeper in some of those things. We're really excited to launch it in September and we'll be taking a cohort, hopefully 15 to 20 patients off the bat. And then from there, we'll see what the interest is and Growth will be limited at the beginning, but we hope that we can get continue to grow that and really just impact people all over the country and maybe the world and this be able to help people get to the point where we're preventing this because you and I both know diabetes is on the rise. And at this point, we don't have any end in sight in that. We really want to help change that direction, trajectory. Absolutely. It's why I'm glad you're here today to speak to a couple million folks because with 37 million of us already diagnosed, we have to start offering folks more solutions, giving them the tools so that they can take their health into their own hands. I think a lot of folks feel like they might go into the doc and hear that they've got prediabetes or their A1C is high and maybe they should go see an RD or count their carbs, but they're hungry for more information. And to understand the root cause, let's start there. When we say type 2 diabetes, what actually is that and what is the underlying pathophysiology that causes it? I know you love this word, but there's actually a paper that was published several years ago now by Stanley Schwartz that describes diabetes as 11 different mechanisms that are going 
awry and causing high blood sugar. It's called the Egregious 11. It originated actually with Ralph DeFranzo's Banting lecture from the ADA previous to that in ominous octet. They always come up with these fun alliteration things. But I think it's interesting, the 11 mechanisms. When I was taught in school about type 2 diabetes, all we were taught was there was insulin resistance at the muscle cell and the liver. The liver wasn't responding to insulin and the muscle cells weren't taking up glucose because the insulin wasn't working there. And then we also learned that the beta cell dysfunction was happening. There wasn't as much insulin. That's about it. We had this triad of things that we were told about type 2 diabetes. That was that old. I mean, I'm getting a little old, but that was when and I graduated in 2009 from pharmacy school. And then now we've learned more and more about what's happening in the body. Some of it gets really nitty gritty about what receptors are happening and different things. But in the overview of it, we see that we do have that pancreatic beta cell function that is lost. We decrease our beta cell mass, which results in less insulin. Patients with type 2 actually have a blunted insulin response. When their glucose rises, they don't get the same insulin response as someone without diabetes. And part of that is also due to other hormones like GLP-1 and GIP, which are considered incretin hormones. And those hormones are secreted in the gut and they tell the brain that you're full. If you don't have as much of that secretion of GLP-1, you might feel hungry all the time, even though your blood sugars are high and you've had plenty to eat. Some of those also affect our morning dopamine surge and the brain's insulin resistance and sympathetic tone. We have that going on. We also have other hormones like amylin that are decreased that play similar roles. And then the stomach and the small intestine are playing a role too because these hormones really should help the stomach have this nice slow emptying into the small intestine and not cause our blood sugar to spike so fast. But when we have less of those hormones, then we also have less of that. We have faster rapid emptying and that sometimes causes blood sugars to spike faster than they should. So that's what happening with sugars. Again, the insulin resistance at the liver, we have increased glucose production. The liver's job is to actually produce glucose in our fasting state. It's called hepatogluconeogenesis. And in that fasting state, our body says, okay, it's the signal of, called glucagon from the pancreas, but comes from the pancreatic alpha cells. And those cells tell the liver, hey, we don't have glucose around right now. You're going to need to send some out. But the problem is that when we do get glucose around and we start eating, the pancreas signal of insulin should tell the liver to shut that off. And unfortunately, in insulin resistance, then it doesn't happen. And not only do we have the glucose that we've eaten, but we also have this excess glucose from the liver production. And even in the fasting state, when we have these what we call basal levels of insulin or small levels of insulin throughout the day, there should be that delicate balance of that. We start to see people waking up with high blood sugars and they have high insulin. The insulin keeps creeping up to try to correct that. And again, their liver is not responding. The same thing happens in the muscle tissue. We see that insulin is like the key to the door in the tissues. It really has to unlock that door for it to be able to open and the glucose go into the cell. And again, when there's insulin resistance, I always explain to my patients that was like a rusty door, like a farmhouse or like old barn door that the insulin's having a really hard time unlocking that when there's insulin resistance. And then also adipose tissue, the lipolysis or the breakdown of that adipose tissue starts to increase. That can create inflammatory markers and inflammation can circle back to all of this. And then also the hyperglycemia also has contributed to the kidney. The interesting thing about the kidney is that the drugs are actually targeting this as well now in the last, I'm probably not good at remembering dates, but it's been within the last decade that we've had newer drugs that affect the kidney 
and maybe a little longer than that, maybe 11 or 12 years ago. But basically, the kidney's job is to reabsorb glucose. It's helping us conserve energy. Our urine goes through the bladder, goes through the, or the kidney first, and then gets filtered out. And then basically, we get urine, but then the glucose goes back into the bloodstream. In patients with type 2 diabetes, as you're starting to get to the point of type 2 diabetes, so even in pre-diabetes, what happens is that the body's because the cell's job there in the nephron is to increase or reabsorb glucose, it's like, wow, there's a lot of glucose coming through here. I need to increase more. Basically, the cells have this maladaptive response that causes more glucose to be absorbed. And patients with type 2 actually would reabsorb more glucose than a healthy person if they were given like a really heavy glucose load. And the cells are then trying to work to increase more glucose in the body or save the glucose because that's its job is to reabsorb. We have that contribution from the kidney. The cool thing is that we do have some drugs now that can actually block those receptors and then cause the glucose to be excreted in the urine, which in general in most patients does fine. Otherwise, sometimes can increase risk of UTIs or yeast infections. But interestingly, I found if I add probiotics to those patients before I start, if they've had a history of yeast infection, they do really well. There's some interesting data there. There's some interesting new data about kidney disease and preventing kidney disease with those agents. Drugs aren't always bad. And I think we're going to talk about that too, because we do at certain points, like I said, it's harder to reverse when we're 15, 20 years out from diagnosis. But we're getting to the gut part now. The cool thing is that this paper, it's not super recent. It was actually back in 2016. And even in 2016, people were talking about the colon and the microbiome and this abnormal microbiome in patients with type 2 diabetes and also a possible decreased GLP-1 secretion in these patients. And we see this too in the evidence for some of the GLP-1 drugs. This is just an example, but there's a drug called semaglutide, which is very popular right now. And they took a group of people that had type 2 diabetes and basically gave them a glucose infusion, a graded glucose infusion. And the people, as their glucose increased, basically they had this, and they also had the group that was didn't have diabetes. So they didn't have diabetes people looked great, their blood sugar or their insulin levels increased as their glucose rose, as they're supposed to. The people with type 2 didn't have that. It was a blunted response. But when they gave them semaglutide, which is the GLP-1 agonist, so it's a drug that actually acts on that GLP-1 receptor at a higher level than our normal, what we call it, super therapeutic amount of GLP-1 compared to the amount that's normally in healthy individuals' body. But basically gave that to the patients with type 2, and then all of a sudden their insulin response was the same as the healthy control group. But it really tells you that lack of GLP-1 in the patients with type 2 diabetes is a piece of this. And I think it's probably multifactorial where it's what the lack of GLP-1 is, but the microbiome and that GI component is definitely there. And then there's also the immune dysregulation and inflammation component. We've got what we call, you've probably talked on this podcast a lot before about dysbiosis and that imbalanced bacteria. And we also oftentimes see what we call the gram-negative bacteria or the bad guys in this piece. And basically, they have a component on them called lipopolysaccharide. And lipopolysaccharide basically punches holes in the gut lining and causes intestinal permeability. And that's really part of the contributing factor to this inflammation that is happening in the gut and then eventually happening around the pancreas. And we know that patients that have this immunological response and it stimulates production of other inflammatory markers and really leads to this chronic inflammation state is playing a role in type 2 diabetes as well. 
So there's a lot of things going on, but the low bifidobacterium is one of the diversity issues we found in type 2 diabetes patients. Again, like overall low diversity, but also the low diversity results in low short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids are basically the byproducts of bacteria. Some people even refer to them sometimes as postbiotics, but you have your fiber, your bacteria eats your fiber, and then we produce short-chain fatty acids. And a lot of the short-chain fatty acids job is to feed the colon cells and give them energy. That's really important, obviously. But also this short-chain fatty acid, specifically butyrate, has been shown to directly support those beta cells and cells that produce insulin. So again, if we're lacking that, we are going to be decreasing our insulin response. And we also know that butyrate has a protective effect against oxidative stress and mitochondrial stress. We promote the survival of beta cells. This is looking in like in vitro studies. But butyrate can also enter the cells and help with the signaling of insulin secretion via the GLP-1 receptors. So this butyrate can increase our GLP-1, which is crazy to think that the byproducts of the bacteria in our gut are actually part of this metabolic process. When I was preparing for this, I actually found something that was saying there is a gut-brain insulin or gut brain insulin GLP-1 access or something like that. It was like, whoa, we're connecting all the dots here. And really some people are saying the gut is an endocrine organ because of all these signaling things that are happening in the gut. Other things to think about is that even with autoimmune patients with type 1, they found a reduction of butyrate producing bacteria in their gut as well. And then 75, this one study showed 75% of diabetes patients experience GI symptoms ranging from gastroparesis to dysbiosis, or I have a lot of patients with type 2 that have gallbladder issues and really the connection between the liver and the gallbladder and the gut. There's just so much of this that is related to the microbiome and what those bugs are supposed to be doing and helping us digest and assimilate our food and turn on these mechanisms. It's good. I think most people think of type 2 diabetes and they may think of the pancreas and insulin and they might think of fat cells but they may not think about the kidneys and the gut and inflammation. And this holistic workup that you're doing for folks that's very evidence-based means that you're looking at more than just insulin and blood sugar. You're looking at other stuff. What's the panel you wish every person with type 2 diabetes got run when they were first diagnosed? I think traditional things that are getting checked already at your primary care office is certainly your hemoglobin A1c. A lot of people are looking at cholesterol, but they're not looking at a more expanded lipoprotein panel. When we're talking a lipoprotein analysis, we're looking at how big and fluffy your LDL are, how small they are, because the small ones are more dangerous. In a perfect world, we would be checking that as well. Although I'll tell you, like it's probably 50-50 on whether insurance will pay for that. I've gotten letters that this is experimental and I've had to write this whole thing back about, no, the lipid guidelines actually suggest this for patients with a cardiovascular risk and got nowhere with that. So I gave up on sending those letters back. You mentioned A1C. And for someone who's not familiar with hemoglobin A1C, it's like a three-month snapshot of your blood sugar. And the way it was described to me to talk to patients about it when I was in med school, I thought was super cute, which is everyone's seen the kind of picture of a red blood cell. It looks like a little disc. And they said, think of it as a cornflake. And the A1C is checking how frosted are your flakes. Isn't it cute? How covered in sugar are your red blood cells? And can you tell our folks, why does A1C 
matter? And what's the mechanism behind why you would want a three-month snapshot? Certainly a glucose is just one point in time. If we're checking that, we're not really seeing the whole picture. And even an A1C has limitations. That three months is really helping us see what the average glucose is. Basically, an A1C can provide an estimated average glucose. There's like a fancy formula that estimates that. But Basically, an A1C less than seven or around seven is an estimated glucose of about 154. And obviously, if you're lower, your average glucose is going to be lower. We want people to be much less than that. That's really like the ADA recommendation for patients that already have type 2 diabetes. But the ACE guidelines, which are endocrinology guidelines, really want patients that have diabetes less than six and a half if they can get there. The cool thing is in the past when we were using a lot of insulin and things that caused low blood sugar for patients, we had trouble getting them to the six mark without them dropping too low and having dangerous side effects there. Now that we have a lot of drugs that don't cause low blood sugars on the drug side, and then certainly the nutraceutical interventions and dietary interventions are certainly very low risk from a low blood sugar standpoint. But now that we have that, we can drive patients' A1Cs to more normal, which normal is really in the 4.8 to 5.6 range. That's where we want it to be because then you're averaging around 100 almost for your patients that have no, you don't have diabetes. Because we really want people to wake up with a glucose in the morning and the 70, 70 to 100 is the standard, but ideally more like 85-ish would be our top, maybe 90 at the top. Because as you creep up to 100, we know that there's really some insulin resistance starting to occur there. And then post-meals, ideally, we'd be in a normal person less than 155 after two hours and then later on back down closer to 100 or less. But again, in patients with diabetes, we're trying to get less than 180 if we're following ADA guidelines or less than 155 if we're following the ACE guidelines. Some people would say if you don't have diabetes, you might even not want to ever see it over 120 or 140. But I think that's going to depend on what you're eating and how often you're eating it and all of those kinds of things. Because it's not dangerous. Your blood sugar is supposed to rise and fall when you eat. I think there is a little bit of this online, everyone using a continuous glucose monitor. You talk a little bit about that because the limitations of A1C are that we're only seeing the average and we're not seeing the rise and the fall. If someone does have diabetes or they have prediabetes, because I have patients that have prediabetes that also struggle with low blood sugars, If we're only testing two times a day on a glucometer and then testing an average, that's not giving us any information about those rise and falling. So that's really where CGMs have revolutionized our ability to really monitor patients, especially on insulin regimens. But even beyond that, we know people are using them to track their meals and see what's happening with their blood sugar after. I wear one normally once a year to see what happens with my blood sugar, test the things that I'm eating on a normal basis, partially because of my family history. I think it is can be an important check-in, but I think we can get obsessed about what's happening with that too. And that can drive people the wrong direction as well. We have to be careful about using those. But I have had patients where that was the only intervention is like, hey, let's put you on this, check your diet. That's one of my patients was eating five Nutrigrain bars a day or something similar to that. She changed her diet because she saw what was happening. And then she was like, oh, wow, I need to change this and lost 15 pounds within a few weeks. That's definitely going to be something that we will be offering as part of our program if people are interested. But I think that it definitely has to be done well and in the right person that we're not going to get super attached to it or obsessed with it. 
Like history of an eating disorder. Yeah, those kinds of things. A1C is absolutely on the panel. And then cholesterol. I would say most providers are checking the CMP, which is a comprehensive metabolic panel because that has liver enzymes and liver enzymes. And we can go in a whole nother podcast about non-alcoholic fatty liver, but that's associated with type 2 diabetes and obesity. And unfortunately, we're even seeing it in kids that are overweight at this point. A lot of the triggers are fructose and choline deficiency and some things like that. Also, microbiome stuff plays a role in development of that. It goes hand in hand here. We definitely want to make sure the liver enzymes are good. And because the problem with that is those elevate and then that can progress to fibrosis and ultimately hepatocarcinoma. We have to watch those. We make sure we test those once a year. But I would say that's probably what's happening. And maybe a CBC, which is a complete blood count, white blood cells, red blood cells might be checked once a year in patients with diabetes. And then Maybe a thyroid panel, but I would guess maybe just a TSH in a lot of practices. That's what's happening in the standard of care. But if we're going to optimize that and really provide a holistic solution for these patients, we really want to see not only the A1C, but also a fasting insulin. We want to know what their insulin resistance level is looking like. Some labs, you might even be able to calculate like an insulin resistance score based on the fasting insulin and the glucose and the A1C numbers. That's something to think about if you know want to track their insulin resistance scores. And then we also, it's called HOMO-IR is the sort of the formula they use in a lot of research studies to study if things are improving insulin resistance or not. And then we talked about expanding the lipid panel, but also expanding the thyroid panel because... The thyroid is regulating a lot of things going on in the body and helping connect some of the orchestra of hormones. If our thyroid's not in a good place, that's going to affect our glucose control. It's also going to affect other things. And a lot of our patients have Hashimoto's, which is autoimmune things. We've got the autoimmune inflammation from that and other root causes that we need to be looking at. We definitely normally would want to look at antibodies and especially if they do come back or have symptoms of thyroid concern. Full thyroid panel, we'd be looking at the TSH plus the free T4, free T3, reverse T3, all of those things. And then things that are specific to what I look at in diabetes are also your HSCRP, which is a inflammatory marker. CRP is not super specific, which is part of the challenge. We could be having inflammation from any area of the body, but there is one that's more sensitive for cardiac risk. That's what the high sensitivity HS stands for. And you can get a risk score if you're, I think it's less than one is optimal, one to three is normal, which no, it shouldn't be normal. We shouldn't have this inflammation here. And then over three is deemed as high risk, but can give you a little bit of understanding about the inflammation picture. And the other thing, which we haven't talked about yet, are nutrient depletions. We test nutrients like zinc. The interesting thing about zinc is that with prediabetes, there's actual studies that show that it has actually improved insulin resistance and reduced that CRP or that inflammation. And part of this is because zinc is a trace mineral that the body needs in very in small amounts, but enough. We need to have enough there to carry out 100 enzyme reactions and chemical reactions in the body. It's involved in the creation of insulin. It's involved in the growth of cells building proteins, healing damaged tissue, and supporting our immune system. We've heard a lot about zinc over the last couple of years with the pandemic and the immune system, but it plays so many roles in the body. Insulin is actually stored as a hexamer containing two zinc ions in the beta cells. We need zinc to really prepare the insulin for release. That's really important. And it's also known to stimulate the breakdown of glucose and inhibit that gluconeogenesis process. I think in the show notes, we can link, there's a whole publication on zinc and diabetes, which gets into all these complex mechanisms If providers listening are super interested. 
But I think it's one of those things that isn't talked about in our medical literature very much or even in the functional space. I find people are talking about magnesium and they're talking about vitamin D and they're talking even about C affecting glucose. But I don't hear a lot of people talking about zinc from a glucose standpoint. Like I said, it's been shown to reduce inflammation, oxidative stress, insulin resistance. There was actually a couple studies that looked at patients that had prediabetes. They actually saw that they did have below normal zinc levels. And there was 200 of them. A group got 20 milligrams of elemental zinc per day. And then the other group got a placebo. And after 12 months, 25% of the patients in the placebo group developed diabetes from pre-diabetes state, and only 11% of the zinc group developed diabetes. And then sometimes I just think, okay, why are we not doing bigger studies on this? And that's big difference. And some of the drugs we use don't even have that difference in preventing progression. And then the crazy thing is also that the insulin resistance improved the total cholesterol and LDL significantly reduced in the zinc group and significant improvement in the beta cell function. And then there was another study that was an RCT that we'll link as well that was zinc sulfate for 30 milligrams for six months and reduced fasting glucose improvements in those homo IR, so those insulin resistance markers, lipids, and improved CRP, which showed that reduction in the inflammation. That's one I'm always testing. I think the challenge is what test do you use for that? And maybe you have some opinion on this. We can at standard labs get a zinc RBC and we can also get a zinc serum. Sometimes I don't find the RBC might look great, but the serum seems low. So it's like, okay, is the amount of zinc available to the cell okay, even though maybe we're not seeing as much around? But what's your preferred, do you have a preferred lab for zinc? It depends. Interesting. It's more what's available. RBC gives you same things. When you're looking at nutrients in red blood cells, guys, because red blood cells live a long time, their average Mm -hmm. lifespan is about 120 days they spend in the body. It gives you that long-term snapshot of the nutrient. Whereas serum is fluid that really gets rapidly cleared from your bloodstream and your body. And zinc might be high in your serum after you eat your oyster-filled dinner, since oysters are a major source of zinc. And then a couple hours later might be low, whereas the RBC zinc does give you that snapshot. I do think it's helpful to measure both. And a lot of times for my clients, it was like serum is cheaper. So we would sometimes start with that if we had to. But just checking it at all, I think, is helpful beyond what most people get. And Guys, just so that you can help understand why many people may benefit from zinc supplementation, zinc is found in abundant amounts in foods like oysters, beef, blue crab, pumpkin seeds, and then some of our cereal and cereal grains in the U.S. are fortified with zinc. But if you're not eating those foods very often, it may make sense why you're at risk of deficiency. And I would say probably 60% of my clients needed some zinc support. Would you agree, Melody? Yeah. And I think too, like people with the dysbiosis and the inflammation in the gut and that the body's trying to repair those cells and zinc is used a lot in that repair of the gut. And I think that's part of the reason why we need more than maybe we should need, even if we are eating a lot of beef or or some of those foods. I think we're challenged with the environment that we have going on in our systems right now. Absolutely. People heard you talk about the gut and lipopolysaccharides from different types of bacteria. How would you measure that and see if that's a problem for someone? Certainly beyond the nutrient depletions, we didn't talk too much about vitamin D, but I know we're probably running short on time, but vitamin D, magnesium, and CoQ10 are also on my list of things to check. But moving on to the microbiome, the looking at a gut test, I think is important. I think the interesting thing to me is as I read about the short chain fatty acids, there's some discussion about 
the short chain fatty acids actually in your blood that are actually maybe a better marker of your status of butyrate and things like that than your stool short chain fatty acids. I don't personally know a lot of ways to look at it in the blood, but maybe you do. But looking at it in the stool is a starting point and a place to look at the diversity of the microbiome and being able to look at, are we missing commensals from all these different places? Because I, that's the case I had with a patient this week. If she's got hardly any commensal, missing half the categories of big commensal groups that we want to see. So if we see that picture and we see the low stool butyrate showing up and low short chain fatty acids in the stool, I think along with the symptoms, the metabolic picture, using this tool that we have easily accessible to us can be really important. People hear stool tests and they might think, oh, I got that from my doctor one time when I had food poisoning. Is it the one they get at their primary care or are there different types? Primary care doctor, if they're ordering just a stool test from a standard lab corp or something similar to that quest, they're going to see maybe your amylase and your lipase and some of these pancreatic enzymes that we need. And traditional medicine will test those when they're suspecting that people also have what's called exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, where they don't make enough of these. The pancreas is maybe not making insulin, but now not making those hormones to break down food. They are looking like, do we have pancreatic glass or not? Or do we need to supplement with prescription enzymes? They can do a culture sometimes at these labs of the stool, but it's really only looking for the big things like traveler's diarrhea bugs and things like that. It's not going to be looking at your commensal microbiome or any of those healthy bacteria to see if they're in balance. And I don't know that most of them even culture for yeast in the stool. I think they would only do that for vaginal swab cultures. It's pretty basic. They will look for inflammation marker like fecal calprotectin. That is a very mainstream marker for inflammation that we differentiate IBD or that inflammatory bowel disease and IBS with. But beyond that, we don't get a lot of information from the stool test about the regular ones that might be available at traditional primary care offices regarding short-chain fatty acids or regarding those commensals or those good bacteria in the microbiome. And we're also not even going to really get much information about the potential pathogens, which could be in the gut. If you're having symptoms of bloating or something like that, and you're trying to figure out what the cause is, these other comprehensive stool tests are going to be able to tell you either by PCR, which is looking for their DNA, just like when we're doing these nasal swabs to see if we can look that way, or we can also look by culture as well. There's a little bit of a debate which one we should be using, but there's a couple of companies that are now doing both. You can see both the culture and the PCR. Cool. A more comprehensive look. And sometimes these tests are called comprehensive digestive stool analysis, or they require collection of your stool over three days to look at a little more in-depth than you may be able to look at your primary care. Although starting with whatever your primary care can run is a reasonable start particularly if you want to know, is my pancreas making enough of the digestive enzymes I need to break down my food? Because that is really important. But I love that you dive deeper. Now, you mentioned more nutrients. Tell us more. What You brought up like CoQ10 and vitamin D. Yeah. The vitamin D literature. I wrote a paper once on vitamin D for our state pharmacy journal. And that was the worst paper ever because there's so much literature out there about vitamin D. I should have focused on vitamin D in one condition and just instead of trying to cover them a million times, a million different things. But we do know vitamin D deficiency is associated with decreased insulin release. We also know it's associated with insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes in epidemiological studies. What we don't know is does fixing the vitamin D deficiency really help as far as improving diabetes once people have diabetes. That's really the part that's still not well 
substantiated in the literature. But there's also connections between vitamin D and non-alcoholic fatty liver as well. I think that narrative is still being looked at and how vitamin D plays a role in this immunological process. And really, vitamin D really is more of a pro-hormone than a vitamin. I think that's something that we need to make sure for a lot of reasons, we need to make sure the vitamin D levels are adequate beyond metabolic syndrome. But it's something that, again, in this prevention mindset, we want to make sure that you're having adequate levels. And there's probably still a debate on what adequate levels are. Traditional medicine says anything less than 30 is deficient, severe deficiency less than 15. But when we, and that's our units, nanograms from deciliter or something like that. I'd have to confirm that the, because when you look at papers, sometimes the papers are European papers and they're using millimoles and they're trying to convert all of these things. But there's, I think a safe place for vitamin D is probably in the 50 to 70 range. There are papers that when we get vitamin D too high, we can actually worsen cardiovascular morbidity and mortality because we increase calcium absorption when we have more vitamin D and certainly calcium can go in the wrong place and calcify arteries instead of into the bones. Now, the caveat to that is none of these studies used K2 or had a measurement of K2 status in any of these patients. So if we did those studies again, would we get the same results if we had K2 on board? Maybe not, but we don't know. I have this guy one time had a vitamin D level like 112. I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Because when you're looking at the studies in the J curve, that's definitely where those patients started to have the increased cardiovascular risk. So I feel it's a 50 to 70 place for most people, especially maybe closer to the 70 if people have autoimmune conditions. But yeah, there is the other thing. Magnesium also has some data related to diabetes. And magnesium is another one of those minerals in our body that is really important in a lot of different processes. And particularly, we have low dietary intake of magnesium in general. Also, if we have this gut picture going on, we have impaired gastrointestinal absorption of magnesium. It's hard to absorb, actually, in a lot of the supplement products. And so there's different forms that might be better absorbed. But there's genetic factors why people might not absorb it as well. And so magnesium deficiency really can lead to this low-grade inflammation, more oxidative stress, more cytokines. And so if we combine that with all of the other things we talked about with the gut, and certainly obesity can also worsen magnesium deficiency, and that alteration in the microbiome can also worsen the cytokine picture, really ultimately leading to impaired signaling. Intracellular magnesium is also important for the insulin signaling. That's a piece there. We definitely want to check the red blood cell magnesium in our patients. Again, we talked about how the red blood cells is going to give us a better picture. Magnesium in the blood, like serum plasma, it's going to be on target every time because if it's not, you're going to be having an arrhythmia or in the hospital or something like that. If you just measure regular magnesium, it really is useless unless you're in an acute care setting and there's a reason you're measuring that. We want to look at more of those red blood cell magnesiums or even some tests will look at more of the leukocyte or the white blood cell levels of some of these nutrients, but we want to look more at the cellular level for those things. And then CoQ10 is also interesting. I started measuring CoQ10 a few years ago, but I find a lot of people are deficient in CoQ10. And this is for a couple of reasons. One, it's not in a lot of foods. Food sources of CoQ10 are low in what we normally eat. And then the other is that our mitochondria these days are running and running and running, you know, cells. And part of that is a lot of these nutrients are all needing to function to get our mitochondria, those powerhouse cells. I remember in third grade learning the mitochondria or whatever, you know, elementary school, the powerhouse of the cell. But it's true. And a lot of phytonutrients need to be available for the mitochondria to work as well as these micronutrients. And this CoQ10 is really important in the energy production piece 
the CoQ10 component here is one of those things that the statin use. Statins are prescription medications that deplete CoQ10. Basically, as you take a statin to lower your cholesterol, CoQ10 is reduced. But we still need the CoQ10 for a lot of these functions in the mitochondria and the body. I do think that this is part of the mechanism of why statins have shown to increase risk of diabetes as far as over time. There was actually a couple study, statin therapy, CoQ10 also depletion also can contribute to some of those muscle pains and fatigue that people get when they're taking statins. And anybody on a statin should be taking at least 100 to 200 milligrams of CoQ10 a day. And it might even depend on if you're on a low dose or high dose if you want. And the hard part too is CoQ10 is expensive to find a really quality product. But I think it's so important that if you're on a statin, that that needs to be one of your major things that you're putting your supplement budget towards. But there was a meta-analysis that showed CoQ10 supplementation could significantly reduce the levels of fasting glucose, A1C, fasting insulin, that HOMO-IR measure, which is the insulin resistance component. And part of that meta-analysis was conducted in patients with diabetes and revealed that the CoQ10 could significantly decrease the fasting glucose level. There was a few studies that reported alternative things, but again, a meta-analysis is grouping all kinds of studies together and looking at the overall picture of what's happening. But we also know that supplementing with CoQ10, this study was actually 200 milligrams of CoQ10 has been shown to improve diabetes-induced loss of endothelial function, but has a protective effect there. And it's interesting, depending on the statin, they actually, whether they're hydrophilic or lipophilic, may play a role in how much CoQ10 is lost. But basically, looking at those studies, we know that CoQ10 can help. Co-treatment with CoQ10 prevents that reduction in some of these protein levels that simvastatin causes, which is one of the statins. Really important to really look at that, especially if you're on that cholesterol medication as well. And that's a whole nother conversation is whether people should be on statins or not. But I think that a conversation that you want to have with your primary care providers, your cardiologist, a lot is going to depend on if you've had a cardiac event before. And if you've had a stroke, if you've had a MI, a heart attack or anything like that, they're going to probably lean towards wanting you on that because of the evidence that is there. But if you have not had one of those before, there is less support as far as evidence goes. So I think that's where it's going to be that risk benefit scenario that you're going to want to talk to your doctors about. And I struggle sometimes in this middle space of the functional integrative world because so many people are like, we don't want to be on drugs, we don't want to be on drugs. But then we have things that we've been blessed with to provide interventions. And how do you navigate like, okay, maybe I do want to stay on this drug because of this evidence. I really think it's all about informed consent and making sure that patients absolutely understand risk and benefits. What's the data for? What's the negative? And really empowering patients to make those decisions for themselves. And if we do decide that, yes, and this is just one example of a drug, but the drug may be the way to go, then what nutrients depletions could that drug possibly cause? And how do we correct for that? Like in this case, it's pretty easy to correct for CoQ10. There may be a little bit of magnesium depletion with statins as well. So making sure our magnesium status is good. And the challenge is there's not a lot of literature. There's some literature out there about drug nutrient depletions, and we know as much as we know. I think if there's researchers listening, I would love to see more literature in that space. It would be amazing if that was part of the FDA's requirement for getting drugs approved is to look at nutrient depletions, but unfortunately, it's not. But yeah, I think that piece and making sure that we've got good nutrient status and those big things is important. And I think iron status is important too. There's people with low iron 
contributing to their fatigue and contributing to poor thyroid function. And then there's people with high iron that because of the liver congestion and the inflammation in the liver, some of those things are happening. So it's a good thing to make sure you are looking at and checking for patients as well. And then beyond those nutrients, you can look at omega-3s status, which we haven't talked about yet. And omega-3s are those beneficial anti-inflammatory fatty acids. And the challenge, well, cost-wise, there is an omega check with some of the standard labs that you can do, sometimes covered on insurance, which can be a good starting place. But there are several functional lab companies that will look at omega-3 status. And again, a lot of the companies have micronutrient testing. We can look beyond these three or four micronutrients that we're talking about and look more in depth into those as well if patients want to dig a little bit deeper. But those are really my big things that I want to cover with patients with type 2 diabetes. And then we didn't talk too much about interventions from the gut standpoint as far as like probiotics and prebiotics. But I'm sure on this podcast, you've heard about the 5R protocol before and addressing those inflammation and the infections and all of that. There is some data with some probiotics and it's continuing to increase over time of what strains are helping to provide what improvements in A1C and glucose and insulin resistance. I think the big thing to think about is what can I do to support my microbiome? And sometimes the probiotic strains are great, but fixing the actual improving the diversity and creating more of the short-chain fatty acids is really important too. Those prebiotics and not just a supplement, but thinking about prebiotics from a dietary standpoint is really important as well. And eating the rainbow, getting those fibers. But if increasing those fibers is making your gut symptoms worse, that's where you really need to work with a provider and get those gut symptoms under control so that we can improve the diversity of your gut. But there's a one specific fiber called sun fiber is the trade name, but it's partially hydrolyzed guar gum. But that one actually has been studied that it lowers postprandial glucose, has lowered CRP. These people were taking six grams of it with each meal, which is quite a bit, but it did stimulate bifidobacteria and butyrate producing bacteria in the small intestine. Sometimes we start with that one in particular. There's also some good data with that in combination with some antimicrobials and improving risk of some of the dysbiosis coming back. That's one of the things that we look at. Sometimes it's by itself or you can get it in the blend of other prebiotics as well. Prebiotics have been shown to improve GLP-1, improve the satiety, lower post-meal hunger scores. And then I did want to mention soil-based probiotics because we were talking about cholesterol a little bit. And soil-based probiotics, there's a study where they actually reduced triglycerides in patients. This connection between the gut microbiome and the metabolic syndrome piece is really interesting. And triglycerides are basically stored as fat when we can't do anything else with this insulin or this glucose. You find people with high glucose If someone has an A1C of 16, most likely their triglycerides are 400, 500 because the body is like, okay, what do I do with all this extra glucose? And it's storing that fat so it can later be used for energy. But in that case, people don't need anymore because they have all this glucose hanging around. In this study, participants took two capsules of a spore-based bacillus probiotic blend for 30 days and actually had a 24% reduction in triglyceride levels at their three-hour postprandial compared to a 5% reduction with placebo. And then another study, they had the patients, anybody could be in the study if they had triglyceride levels greater than 150 in the soil base versus the placebo, they had decreased the mean triglyceride level by 37 milligrams per deciliter, which is compared to some of the drugs out there, not quite as strong. But even in some studies, Fibrate, which is a drug for reducing triglycerides, had a 27% reduction in four months. And if you think about this percent reduction, when you go back and look at where their baseline was, which was 
I think in the 212-ish range, they were reducing by 18% in 12 weeks. Not too bad compared to a drug that is there. If we looked at this longer and with other interventions, I think we could see a lot. But the spore-based probiotics are actually pretty good at expanding diversity in the gut. I think that's part of the mechanism of how this is working, decreasing endotoxin release and things like that. It's pretty exciting that we're seeing data of like, we're doing this intervention in the gut and this is happening for patients. Triglyceride levels of 150 are considered normal, but if you think about optimal, really less than 100 is really more optimal. If we can take something like a probiotic and get from 150 to 110, that can make a big difference in your some of your cardiac risk. And it's like a why not? Why would you not do it? Unless you can't afford it, which I get. But in that case, there's lots of food-based soil-type strains that are found in a lot of fermented foods, too. That would be a great place to start. Eat more plants that grow in the soil. (laughs) Yes, yeah, eat your carrots. Yeah, eat more plants grown in organic soil and maybe don't wash all that soil off and eat a ton more plants. It's interesting because some of the medications that lower triglycerides come with some interesting side effects that you would probably want to avoid. Whereas a lot of these spore-based probiotics only come with side benefits. Yeah. They're just going to improve your gut health overall. And for the folks at home who have not seen pictures of blood with high triglycerides, I illustrate for you in your imagination, triglycerides are fat. If you've ever seen the solid stuff that forms on top of olive oil or an oil that you leave out, if you have too many triglycerides in your blood, your blood gets sticky. And then there are people who've had such high triglycerides in their blood that their blood actually starts to solidify. You can look at pictures of this online as we're thinking about, we need to keep your blood fluid so that it's a liquid that's delivering oxygen and nutrients to your cells and it's not getting stuck and clogged. This is real and you can see pictures of it. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting to see data of using omega-3 fatty acids with, because they reduce triglycerides as well. And there's actual prescription products that are labeled for reduction in triglycerides. And one of them actually has an indication for cardiac risk reduction as well. It's EPA, so the pharmaceutical industry has gone more to the EPA versus a combination of EPA and DHA. It's interesting because in surrogate marker studies, when we're looking at inflammation markers and triglycerides and things like that, the DHA outperforms EPA, but in some of these clinical endpoint studies that they've done with the pharmaceutical industry, the EPA has done better. I think in general, I like a combination, but if patients can not afford the really high quality fish oil, but their insurance pays for one of these fish oils that's available on the market and they can get that for $9 a month, then that's what we're going to do. Combining some of those resources for people can be helpful. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see like high dose fish oil plus the spore-based probiotic and how much impact we could get on the triglyceride levels. If anyone out there is listening, wants to fund that, let me know. What's interesting, guys, when we look at food as medicine and we start to take a nutrient and make it a pharmaceutical grade nutrient intervention, what we often do is take that chemical out of the whole food form. When you eat salmon, flax, chia seeds, walnuts, you're getting a mix of all the different types of omega-3. You're also getting fiber and other nutrients. When you pull EPA out of fish oil and you concentrate it and you give it to someone, for sure it can have an effect, but you're also going to miss the other benefits you'd get if you ate that whole food. And because we have to pay for meals anyway, it's really in your best interest to try to eat more things with omega-3s, which again, flax, chia, and walnuts are not meat or fish. If you don't eat meat or fish, don't fret. You can eat more of those. And then things like salmon have omega-3s and you can track your intake of these nutrients. You can use something like MyFitnessPal or Chronometer to see how many omega-3s are you getting 
per day because I've had clients who we've been able to get them up to eight grams a day just with diet and then they don't have to take the pills. And we're also able to boost their fiber a ton when we do that because they're eating more walnuts and chia seeds and flax seeds. And that has been shown again and again to lower things like total cholesterol over time. You get a lot of bang for your buck when you learn to do this with food. And I know that you guys have coaches and you're working with nutrition in this program. And we have studies, y'all, where like a dietary intervention for people with diabetes, type two, who've had it for less than six years, when they do a dietary intervention for three to five months, when we look at them a year later, 46% of them are still in remission from type two diabetes. They don't have diabetes anymore. Versus 4% of people who, when followed over the same time and didn't change their diet, only 4% were able to reverse their type 2 diabetes. That's an increase of 10 times. And again, you can do this along with medication. And Dr. Melody, because you work with medication so extensively, I do want to pick your brain on this, especially because people probably heard you say semaglutide earlier, which they may know by a different name, but there's a lot of talk about GLP-1. Talk to us a little bit about how you counsel your clients about the different types of medications available for type 2 diabetes and how to think about them as part of a holistic plan. The first, I will be my, the biggest cheerleader for going as natural as possible for patients. But I think there is a point, and I mentioned this a little bit at the beginning, that we have to get the blood sugar controlled soon. If someone presents with overt diabetes and has a diagnosis of diabetes, I want to get these the glucose down as fast as possible because of that metabolic memory process. And the earlier we control, the better and the less inflammation that's going to occur over time. If your blood sugars are crazy high, and maybe it depends on if you're crazy high because you're drinking six Mountain Dews a day or six glasses of milk or whatever that looks like that we can drastically take away right away, you know, what we're going to decide ultimately. But if we are talking about using drug therapy, maybe as a tool at the beginning and working on the nutrient component as well, the classes of medications are the first line therapy is considered to be metformin still. Now there's a lot of discussion on should GLP-1s or these ones that work in the kidneys called SGLT2s be more at the forefront now because we have this cardiovascular risk reduction data with both of those classes of medications. But the challenge is both of those classes of medications are really expensive from the healthcare standpoint. If we're looking at the bigger picture of public health, like telling everybody that they should be using those two instead of the cheapest medication on the planet, that's then we are going to have a really high insurance. Everybody's insurance is going to go through the roof with the number of people that we have taking diabetes medications. We're still at metformin because it's really effective. And for people without any GI issues, which we talked about, there's a lot of patients that have GI issues that have diabetes, it can be really effective and tolerated well, especially if we use an extended release product so it doesn't all dump into the system at the same time. There's actually even some evidence like metformin increases acromancia. There's people in the lung, which is one of the beneficial microbiome strains. There's some evidence that it also has some longevity data with mTOR and all that kind of stuff, which I can't speak to very well, but I know people are out there using that for that purpose. But I think that is an option for people. It's a cheap option. It can help reduce the blood sugars very well. They can work on their diet. It's not necessarily going to address some of the satiety component. And I think that's where GLP-1 sometimes can come in and say, because of the mechanism of GLP-1 being lost in that root cause approach, If that's what's happening and we're missing that and it's going to take us a while to build this microbiome back up, maybe this medication that actually tells me I'm full faster 
will help me make those dietary and lifestyle modifications. If that's how you're thinking about it, I think that is a really good tool that we have to do that. If we're counseling patients on it, we're going to talk about making sure we eat small meals at the beginning, because when we all of a sudden have this super therapeutic GLP-1 effect, we're going to be nauseous. That's the number one side effect of the GLP-1 class of medications is nausea. And sometimes they can cause vomiting. I don't find that very often, but if people have had diabetes for a really long time and they have some of that gastroparesis, which is the slowing of the GI tract, if they have that, then sometimes I think it exacerbates that or worsens that and causes it to cause more of the vomiting. I've only had a few people ever say, oh, I actually vomited from this. Most of the time, it's the nauseous feeling. Like when you eat a big Thanksgiving dinner and you're like, oh my goodness, that was too much. Small meals at the beginning is really important. And anytime the dose is increased, that may also trigger a little bit of additional nausea. Certainly, there's dependent on the drug, more risk factors. If people have had a history of pancreatitis, which is inflammation of the pancreas, those people have been excluded from GLP-1 studies because they found that those patients that were taking GLP-1s and even another class of medications called DPP-4 inhibitors, which is basically a drug that helps keep your own GLP-1 around longer. It helps prevent it from breaking down. Those also had a slight increased risk in pancreatitis. People that have had pancreatitis, these wouldn't be the best therapies. But again, I think that's individualized. If the patient had pancreatitis because they had their gallbladder going crazy and they had their gallbladder removed and now that's gone and there might be a reason to consider it, but that's case by case with their provider. Certainly, if you vomit, you can become dehydrated and that can trigger problems with kidneys and things like that. There's all kinds of black box warning things. There is a black box warning on GLP-1s, including the one we mentioned about thyroid cancer. And we get that question a lot. But the data we have really only shows the thyroid cancer in rat models. High doses of it in rats can contribute to medullary thyroid type cancer. But it wasn't even the type that we see in humans. And we've been using these drugs since early 2000s now. And we're really close to 20 years on one of them. And I suspect the FDA will remove that black bus warning at some point just because we haven't seen this happen in humans in these drugs. But I can't say that for sure on any of them. So that is still there and still a conversation I like to counsel people on because if they go to the pharmacy, the people that read the pamphlet are going to come back and say, this is going to give me cancer. Again, I've never seen that to happen in my own practice, but it is like exclusion criteria for people that have history of medullary thyroid cancer or a family history of what's called MENS, which is combination of endocrine disorders. Anyways, I think counseling on that, those are the next step after metformin or there is that drug that helps make the kidneys not reabsorb the glucose and put, and that's the SGLT2 inhibitor, which is Imbicana, Farsiga, and Jardians. And we're starting to see those being used for things like cardiovascular risk reduction, kidney protection, and also even heart failure because they're working in a different mechanism to help get rid of some of that fluid and inflammation in those heart failure patients. The data is pretty cool on that because a lot of those people, we struggle with with what to do with them other than give them big doses of diuretics. Those are the, the two main categories that I think are like metformin and those two are really the most appropriate. There's some older drugs called sulfonylureas, like our glipizide, gliburide, medications like that, that are often prescribed because they're cheap. But the challenge with them is that 30 to 40% of patients get a low blood sugar episode when they take one of those medications. And that's a really high percentage of people that are going to experience a low blood sugar. It's actually higher than our basal insulin. So it blows my mind that a truck driver can take a glipizide medication and be totally fine on the road, doesn't even matter. We don't even have to fill out a form. 
But to get them a basal insulin, which has less than 10% rate of low blood sugar, we have to fill out a million forms. They could even drive a truck with their CDL still again if they were on a basal or a low, slow-acting insulin. Yeah, salmonarias are not our favorite. And I probably can count on my one hand how many times I've had a patient that I felt should stay on it because they had reactions to some of these other things. And maybe they weren't the best candidate for mealtime insulin because of cognitive things or their life situations. But the other option is insulin. And the challenge with that is that in type 2, it's really not the answer. All these things we talked about, we do have that beta cell dysfunction. There is a point where we decrease it over time. And they say there's data that shows that diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, we only have 50% of our beta cell function. But that was like pre-GLP-1, pre some of these other things. And now that we know GLP-1s promote beta cell proliferation and things like that, I'm not exactly sure where that would land, assuming patients could get on something like that. But that decline over time, if we're not addressing all these other things and really tightening the glucose control, could lead to a point where the patient is type 2 and we measure their endogenous insulin levels using a test called C-peptide and we find out they don't have enough insulin, either fasting or postprandial. And those patients may need insulin even though they're type 2. And that obviously comes with a lot of counseling about low blood sugars because if we overdose insulin, we can go have our glucose go too low. What timing does the insulin doesn't work exactly like the insulin in our body works? Most of it needs about a 15 minute before a meal. There are some newer ultra rapid acting ones that work faster, but likely the patient's working with a specialist or an endocrinologist to do those kinds of things that they're taking insulin. Now, a lot of primary care providers are prescribing insulin too. There's not enough endocrinologists in the country to even manage the people in our state of patients with diabetes. That's why it's really become a primary care managed condition, especially type 2, unless patients really need that intense insulin and pump therapy and things like that. Not as many primary care providers are doing pump therapy, although the pumps are getting so much easier that primary care is, is starting to get into a little bit of that because of the simplicity of some of the pumps it's like Omnipod and even the tandem system Medtronic a lot of their it's cool that the pumps now like the CGM talks to the pump and so as your blood sugar rises your pump gives you more insulin I could talk about that all day long but counseling is really important metformin if patients are taking the metformin food on the stomach is really important otherwise you're going to be nauseous so one of the ways it works is it provides, helps the liver to become more sensitive to the insulin. That's one mechanism. But the other mechanism, which is why it causes the diarrhea, is that it prevents the glucose from being absorbed in the gut. And you get this glucose in the lumen of the gut, which glucose comes water. You get this looser stool. But then you also, in the patients with diabetes that have dysbiosis, you have this glucose available for fermentation. And then that is probably well, exacerbating some of the diarrhea as well. That's something to watch out for. But if you have no GI issues, I find men do fine on metformin, but women, it's more of an issue with the GI side effects. I've hardly ever had a man come and say they have diarrhea from it. It's just we're more likely to have IBS and all of those kinds of things. It's just part of life. But yeah, but counseling is really important. And if you have questions about a medication and your doctor's not able to answer them, absolutely ask your pharmacist. Go to your local pharmacy or the most accessible healthcare professional. I get frustrated as much as other patients and calling other offices and not being able to actually talk to the provider like my colleague. You can walk up to the counter and ask your pharmacist to explain medication-related things to you. Now, will they all know everything about all the stuff we talked about today? Probably not because it's not taught in pharmacy school, it's not taught in medical school, but they will know about the drug and how the mechanism of the drug works and what the side effects of the drug are and be able to help you in those decisions. It seems, I know you run a functional medicine training program for pharmacists because part of what, you're going to do a great job if you're a pharmacist of educating your client about metformin, the risks, the indications, the possible side effects. 
But as a functional medicine pharmacist, you can say things like, okay, if you have dysbiosis, you're more likely to have a negative reaction to metformin. Let's take care of the dysbiosis. If you have fatigue, we know that metformin interferes with B12. Let's work on that B12. You have this additional toolkit. And for folks who are thinking, I've never even heard of a functional medicine pharmacist, how would they find one? We have a whole team of functional medicine pharmacists. We are at Farm to Table, which is spelled with a PH for pharmacy, P-H-A-R-M-T-O-T-A-B-L-E dot life. When I originally started my blog back in 2017, when it wasn't, this was not the vision at all that has morphed and been amazing. But pharmatable.com was like $5,000. So I was like, okay, it's going to be about my life, but we're going to go with the 1999 version. But I think it really plays a role because we have this medical part, we have the table part and the food that we're eating is so important. And then this is about our life and our community and just be able to like, I still love it, even though it makes it a little harder to find. And we are there, you can find us and I'm sure that'll be linked in the show notes as well. But we have functional medicine packages where we work um, to help you get to these root causes. We also have medication optimization visits. If you have questions about your medications or have questions about supplements interacting with medications, we are there to help you with that as well. We're also going to have the Thrive program up on there as well, which will be farmtotable.life backslash Thrive, which is the program we talked about. But if you're a pharmacist and you're interested in learning more about functional medicine and you don't know where to start, we have a website called functionalmedicinece.com. And that is where we teach. And Dr. Henry has taught with us as well about how to work up patients like this and how to have this lens that we're looking at things differently. And it's just a really good combination. We are taught so much about pharmacology, which is a study of how all these drugs work, and so much about physiology and biochemistry and being able to layer in the nutraceuticals, food-based approaches, how those all affect your biochemistry and physiology and all of that is a really cool tool to be able to add to your toolkit and also bring in the data we know from the drug industry and when risk-benefit. And I think that it helps us be more of that middle grounds person. I know there's one like podcaster guy that always talks about like the alt-middle because we've got both sides just crazy because we've got this side saying none of this and this side saying we're going to do all of this and your stuff is hogwash. But being able to be in the middle and say, okay, there's value in this and there's value in this. And how do I thrive in the midst of all these options? And how do I get to a point where I'm comfortable and feeling great? And whether it's I use a tool from here and a tool from here. And if you have an endocrinologist folks at home, you can't get in to see them more than a few times a year, if that. Right. Same thing with your primary mm-hmm. care. You might have to wait a couple of months to see your primary care. The more providers that you can bring to your team so that you have that regular care, especially when you are trying to actively reverse a disorder, you need a lot of routine monitoring because a lot of your doses of medications yeah. are going to change. You might need to lower the dose of some of your medications to avoid side effects as you get healthier. The more people who are educated and who are coordinating your care, the better when you're making these changes. Absolutely. A lot of my career I've spent as the pharmacist in a primary care office and being that extra person that is facilitating those changes in between visits and doing some of the coaching along the way. There's providers out there listening that are like, I'm swamped with these patients that want help. Our team can absolutely support you. We have some of our team contracted to various offices providing sort of the back end support for those complex medication patients and We're just really wanting to help people de-prescribe. There's drugs. We could talk all day about drugs that people shouldn't be taking for 30 years, but they're taking like PPIs and all of these things that need to come off. But providers don't have the, especially in the mainstream medical model of 15 minutes, they don't have the time to get down into all this stuff. 
And even in the functional medicine practices, patients come in with overwhelming life stories to the point where you need an hour to talk to them and get through all of this. And even then, it feels like you've only touched the surface of things because you're really trying to resonate with the patient and what they're experiencing. And having a back-end team for support can be really beneficial, especially if you're needing extra coaches or extra people to really grow your practice. Because if you're one person, you can only do so much. But if you're one person that manages and oversees a team of people, you can really impact more people in your community. And I think that is one of our goals is to really be able to support more practices too. I'm so glad you're doing that. Even for me with my background in mental health care, there's a psychiatry shortage in America. I would have a lot of clients come in to see me taking literally 14 different medications. Wanting to come off of them, the once a month visit was not going to do it. We need more people helping. And additionally, this lifestyle change, you need to check in with somebody once a week when you're trying to change your diet or change your sleep. You can read all the right things and know all the right things, but you need that behavioral support and encouragement. That's a type of medicine that we can't discount. And I'm so grateful that you're training more providers in this and that you guys are part of the solution. I think this is really incredible and a way for folks to level up their care in a way they probably didn't know existed until this podcast. I'm going to take two extra minutes and pick your brain because you're here. I've had so many people who do not have diabetes, who don't even have pre-diabetes, but who feel that they are overweight come into my practice and say, Kate, should I take Ozempic? How do you respond when people ask you that? I think from an individualized standpoint, the question is, what have you done so far to address a lot of these other things that we've talked about lifestyle-wise? But do I think it is the worst thing in the world? No. I think it is a tool, just like we talked about for diabetes. Now, Ozempic is not branded for technically FDA-approved for weight loss. That would be the Wagovi product. They're the same exact thing, but the FDA makes a line between weight loss products and other things. It's crazy, but it started with all the fun and the craziness that happened from that. And unfortunately, I think it cost the system a lot of extra money to have separate sales forces and all of this stuff with what the FDA requires. Wagovi is the product we'd be talking about for weight loss. Now there's a lot of crazy things happening right now with compounding of it and trying to add things to it to make it different because of the shortage. But I think the FDA is trying to crack down a little bit on that because it still is under patents. But yes, I think it is a tool and we can't think about it always from a long-term forever because if we are thinking about the cost to a person for the rest of their life, if we're thinking from the health insurance side, and we also don't have data for what this looks like for the rest of their life either, like our data, three years, if people, and I think using it as a tool is really important and figuring out when to come off of it and how to come off of it. And can we impact the microbiome enough that we can improve the natural GLP-1 component along the way. I think if you're using it, you should be working with someone on all these other things as well so that maybe we can sustain coming off of it or we can decrease to every other week or we can do all these other interventions. It has a long half-life. If you're just using it for weight loss, some of my patients will say that they've done okay continuing once a month or something like that instead of every week once they get to their goals. It's not a never. It's definitely a tool, but I think you have to think forward about is this a cost-effective thing forever? And I think there's a lot of people out there saying, yes, people should be on forever. But I'm not sure if we can say that yet just because we don't have that long-term data. And there are companies, there's actually some cool employer health type programs that are actually trying to utilize a way to help people be on it for 18 months and then come with coaching and other things to help them get off of it and sustain the weight loss off of it. Because they're recognizing that employers, again, like we talked about before, it's so expensive. Can we really sustain 
people being on it for a lifelong 30 years, 40 years type scenario. And unfortunately, I think cost-wise, the answer is probably no. And as good as the drug could be, if even if it's like magic, if it costs that, we have to think about all of those aspects of our system. I think it's great. The more voices and educated voices in this sphere, I think is really important. I've used it also for people trying to get pregnant. Obviously, you have to discontinue it. And maybe it's not the right GLP-1 for pre-pregnancy because it has such a long half-life. Because ideally, you want to discontinue two months before a planned pregnancy. But because of the really good impacts on insulin resistance and we like PCOS patients and things like that, there are some GLP-1s that have shorter half-lives, like their daily doses, that might be good options. There's lots of reasons to use things off-label and provide ways to really get at this and help people achieve amazing things like have a baby without it being this negative, horrible thing. The middle, the ultra moderate. I love it. And to me, that's a sign of somebody who's truly read the literature is that you rarely come out with an extreme point of view. You really are able to advise clients like if this, then that. And that's what individualized medicine is digging into the data and figuring out when is best, not what is best and how to use all of the tools available to you and when you would choose them. I'm so thrilled that you're out there educating clients about type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. I want to thank you so much for talking with us today. And we're going to see you again because we've got to bring you back to talk more about de-prescribing and more nutrient and... Yeah, let's talk about PPIs next time. Amazing. (laughs) I cannot wait. And one more time, let people know that website where they can find you. Our website is farm to table, P-H-A-R-M-T-O-T-A-B-L-E dot life, L-I-F-E, and also at functionalmedicineCE.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Melody. We will talk to you soon. Yes, thank you. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is bringing this education to the people who need it. And positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we so appreciate it. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.